The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Proverbs 16.9 says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God is in control of your life? Because what this verse means is that people can plan things, can even make choices to do things. But whether those choices are established, whether their choices actually happen, happen the way we plan them, the way we chose them, that's ultimately up to God. It calls to mind the image of a shepherd and the sheep. It's really a shepherd who establishes the paths of the sheep. The shepherd guides and protects. The shepherd chooses the route the sheep take through the hillsides to find green pasture. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps means that the desires of our hearts, the decisions we make when we plan our life are ultimately established, secured, guaranteed by the control of the Lord. And while I asked you if you believed that, I think the more practical question is, do you trust him to be in control of your life? Do you trust God to be in control of your life? My prayer for us this morning is that we would grow in our trust and love for God. And more specifically, that we would grow in our trust of a sovereign God. The idea that God is a king who rules over everything. The idea that God has total control and authority as the rightful ruler of everything that ever has been or ever will be. That's what theologians call God's sovereignty. And my prayer today is that as we study these ideas in the Proverbs, that we would grow in our love and trust for our sovereign king. If you're visiting with us today, you have found us in the middle of a several-month study of the book of Proverbs. It's a book that's dedicated to wisdom. It's a book that's dedicated to wise living. And as we've been doing for the last several weeks, we're going to continue today by considering another one of the themes that runs throughout the book of Proverbs, namely God's sovereignty. Now, in order to get a sense of what the whole book of Proverbs has to say about God's sovereignty, I've selected a range of scriptures. And to keep you having uh, to turn back and forth in your Bible, we've listed the verses about God's sovereignty we're going to study on an insert in your bulletin. I'm sorry if you didn't think you needed glasses before today, but, you know, that's the way it goes. So I wonder if it strikes you as strange that God's sovereignty is a theme that runs throughout the book of Proverbs that a book about wise living has one of, as one of its many themes, the sovereignty of God. Proverbs is a book about the wise way to spend our money. Proverbs is a book about the wise way to build relationships, the wise way to work, the wise way to love, to find contentment. Proverbs teaches that we are responsible for our choices. And Proverbs teaches that foolish choices lead to hard consequences. So, I wonder if it strikes you as strange that the sovereignty of God is one of the themes that runs throughout the book of Proverbs. But make no mistake, Proverbs is also a book about the sovereignty of God. And more specifically, Proverbs is about how trusting the sovereignty of God is the foundation of wise living. 
So the task we have before us this morning is to consider how God's control of our lives shapes the way that we think about making choices in this world. The task we have before us is to consider how God's control of our lives shapes wise living. And the main point is this. Trusting in the sovereignty of God is the foundation of wise living. Trusting in the sovereignty of God is the source of wise living. Maybe put another way. If we want to live wisely, we have to learn to trust a sovereign God. Now, as we consider this main idea of how to trust in the sovereignty of God, we're first going to consider the characteristics of God's sovereignty. I have three of them listed here. God's sovereignty is absolute. God's sovereignty is inscrutable. God's sovereignty is personal. Then we're going to transition to focus on how, God, how trusting in God's sovereignty is the foundation of wise living and how God's sovereignty is the foundation of our salvation in Jesus. So the place to start, the place to start when considering the sovereignty of God is with his absolute rule. And by that I mean that God is king over everything for all time without any limitation. God is king over everything for all time without any limitation. And one of the clearest demonstration of God's absolute sovereignty is his creation. Simply put, God is in control of everything because he made everything. Proverbs 3, 18 through 20 says, The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down the dew. It doesn't take very much time to spend in awe of nature to realize that the God who created the depths of the sea, who created the infiniteness of space and the majesty of the mountains and the smallest of the Hicks boson, that God who made all of those things by speaking a word, he is in control of everything. not just God showing his authority in the intentional act of establishing creation. God continues to demonstrate his authority over the world in the way that he actively sustains his creation. Look back to the verse we just read. Look at the end. It says, the clouds drop down the dew. What that's highlighting is that God continues to be in control of creation in an ongoing way by the sustaining act of providing rain. God is in control of everything because he created everything and he continues to sustain its existence. God is in control of everything because he created everything and he continues to sustain his, its existence. Now, one of the most meaningful implications of God's creative sovereignty comes out in the first part of verse 18 that we just read. I wonder if you saw it. It said, the Lord by wisdom founded the earth. God's wisdom founded the earth. And the reason that that is so important is because God is offering us his wisdom in the Proverbs. God is offering us the same wisdom for our lives that he used to create the world. I mean, what, 
What a totally awesome thing to consider. You can go lots of places for wisdom. You can sit on the stool of your local bartender. You can sit on the yoga mat at your local YMCA and listen to the musings of your yoga teacher. You can listen to the teachings of Confucius or you can sit at the feet of the God who created the world with a word drawing from the same well of wisdom that created and sustains the heaven and the earth. You can listen to the wisdom of the world or you can listen to the wisdom that created the world. And the reason that that is so important is it means that you can trust God's wisdom. You can trust what he tells you is right and true. Why? Because the glory of creation testifies to the glory and trustworthiness of God's wisdom. You can trust God's wisdom in your life because it is trustworthy. And God establishes the trustworthiness of his wisdom in the creation. God's sovereignty, as displayed in his creation, not only establishes his absolute authority over everything for all time, but God's sovereignty also establishes the source of wisdom that we are promised in the Proverbs. And so if you ever doubt the all-surpassing and glorious wisdom of God, let me say that again. When you doubt the all-surpassing and glorious wisdom of God, just look around you. Marvel at the glory of creation and you are marveling at the glory of the wisdom of God. Marvel at the glory of creation and you are marveling at the wisdom that God has promised you. So, having then considered the authoritative sovereignty of God in creation, we need to spend just another few minutes before moving on to the second point when we think about the reach of God's authoritative sovereignty. Put another way, is there anything that's outside of God's control? Is there anything that is outside of God's control? And Proverbs definitively answers that question. No. There is nothing that's outside of God's control. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap but it's every decision is from the Lord. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. The idea here is that even things that are supposed to be random, like drawing lots, or like another um, translation says, like throwing dice, even those things that are supposed to be random are subject to the authority of the sovereign Lord. The complete sovereignty of God leaves no room for chance. It leaves no room for luck. It leaves no room for randomness. It leaves no room for an impersonal fate. There is nothing that is outside of God's control. R.C. Sproul puts it this way, there isn't a single molecule in the entire universe that's running around loose outside of the control of God's sovereignty. I mean, just think about that for a minute. There isn't a single molecule in the entire universe that's running around loose totally free of God's sovereignty. God's authority is total and is over even the smallest of things. His reach is everywhere, even over the things we might be inclined to attribute to chance. 
And this notion of God's sovereignty, let me tell you, it has real implications for how we think about our lives. You see, the point is God is sovereign and we are not. He is in absolute control over everything for all time and we are not. And that brings me to the second point that we want to make today. That God's sovereignty is inscrutable. What that means is we can't fully know the ways of God. I just want to take a parenthesis here. I don't really like using big theology words, let alone using a big theology word to define another big theology word, right? So God's sovereignty is inscrutable. Good. Inscrutable is an important one for us to know. It comes up a lot when you study the sovereignty of God. And it's an important word for us to use today, inscrutable. It means not fully knowable. God's sovereignty is not fully knowable. Proverbs 25.2 says, It's the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings is to search things out. It is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings is to search things out. There's some mystery there. It says that it's glorious for God to have some things that are hidden from us. It's glorious for God not to be fully known by us. It also says, by the way, that it is the glory of people, the glory of, in this case, kings, to search things out, to try and know God. That's what brings glory to man. We're going to come back to that in just a minute. But for now, I want us to focus on the idea that God cannot be fully known by man and We don't want him to be. You see, I think Proverbs helps us to understand this idea of an inscrutable God in an important way. And not only to understand it, but to see God's inscrutability as a good thing. You see, God cannot be fully known by man. That's the point that Proverbs 25.2 is making. But the Proverbs do more than just tell us that we can't fully know God. They show us. Proverbs shows us that God cannot be fully known by people for two reasons. The first is that God is so much bigger than we are that we couldn't possibly know him fully. And God doesn't need us for anything, least of all wisdom or knowledge. So to try and get a sense of that, I want us to go to Proverbs 30. We studied in uh, in depth last week, uh, and so I'm just going to bring it to our attention briefly here. I want to remember that it's a series of rhetorical questions, right? So it says, who has ascended to heaven and come down? The implication is, have you? Who's gathered up the wind in his fists? Who's wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What's his name and what's his son's name? Surely you know. Now there's some nuance and depth to these verses, and we considered them more fully last week. Today I bring them to your attention to make one point. And that is that God is so much bigger than we are that we couldn't possibly know him fully. I mean, how could you fully know a God who can wrap up the waters in a garment? I mean, the vast oceans of the world swallow me up. I don't wrap them up in a garment. How could you ever possibly know a God who's established all the ends of the earth? I can't even fathom the creative genius that would be necessary to create one of God's creatures let alone top to bottom the whole earth. God is God, and I am not. My mind 
and body just don't have the capacity to fully know a God like that. Now, another angle of the picture of God's inscrutability is that God doesn't need us for anything. Proverbs 21.30 says, No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. You think your wisdom is wiser than God's? You think your counsel is something that he needs? You think you could have done it better than God? Proverbs tells us no. God doesn't need anything from us. He doesn't need our advice. He doesn't need our understanding. In fact, Ephesians 1.11 says, God does all things according to the counsel of his will. He does everything according to the counsel of his will. Not our will. So I just want to take a minute and make this point and connection really concrete for us. These last two verses don't tell us explicitly that God isn't fully knowable. Instead, they show us. They show us by how we relate to God. You see, if God needed our help for things, if he needed our advice or our counsel, then he would be some way subject to us. He would be in some way dependent on us. But God is bigger than us. God is bigger than us in the way he created the world. God is bigger than us. And God doesn't need our wisdom or advice for anything. God isn't subject to us. We are subject to him. I think here's the question. Where's the glory in that? Proverbs 25.2 said there was glory in God not being fully knowable. Where is the glory in God's inscrutability? You see, I think it's exceptionally good news for us. It's exceptionally glorious for us because we don't want a God that's limited by us. You see, if you could know all of God, then he would be limited by the bounds of your knowledge, by the bounds of your imagination. If you could exhaust the depths of God's love, then his love would only be as big as you. Friends, I don't want a God that's smaller than me. I don't want a God who is my subject. I want a God who is king. I want to serve a God who's so much bigger than I am. I want to be able to cry out with Paul in Ephesians 3, 18. May we have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of Christ's love and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. And if that weren't enough, Paul goes on to say, God, who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. I want a God whose love is inexhaustible. I want a God who is in control of everything because if God isn't absolutely in control of everything, if God isn't bigger than all of us, if we could know God fully, then Ephesians 3 sounds something like this. I printed it for you. You can follow along. Instead of saying... Instead of saying, if we could have the strength to comprehend with all the saints, it might sound something like, the God of the Bible can be easily known. You can know him with your own strength. And then it says, 
instead of saying, what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of Christ's love? It might sound something like, look, just dive into the depths of God's love. It isn't very deep or wide. Just swim here a little while. Hold your breath for a second. Dive down deep. You can find the bottom of God's love. Then it would say, this love that you already know, that's it. It doesn't get any better or any bigger. And if things get worse in your life, I'm sorry. But you've reached the most God has to offer. That is just going to have to do. You can't ask him for anything else. You see, if God is fully knowable by us, then the most you can expect of God is what you can expect of yourself. And I don't want a God like that because I know myself. I don't want a God like that. I want a God whose love I cannot possibly fathom. I want a God where when I consider his holiness, I cry out in awe and wonder, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable his ways. That's Romans eleven, thirty-three. The depth of his knowledge. So it brings me back to Proverbs 25, 2. It is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings is to search things out. I have to admit there's mystery there. It's glorious for God to have some things that are hidden from us, some things that we can't know. But it doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to know them. You see, the glory of people in this case, kings, the glory of people is to search things out, to try and know God. That brings glory. Seeking God brings glory. You see, seeing that there is a God who is not fully knowable can lead to two really unfortunate responses. You can either give up trying to know him, or you can despair because you've tried and you don't understand I think that last one is particularly troubling for those of us who consider ourselves discriminating or criminal, excuse me, critical thinkers. Right? We think that until we can really know something all the way through, until we can really know something from top to bottom, we can't sign on to it. We can't, unless we can consider all the implications, we can't really jump on the bandwagon, right? So if you're in that boat, and have tried to know God but haven't gotten there yet, if you're in that boat and still don't understand the depths of God, I want to encourage you in two ways. The first is, just because you can't know God fully doesn't mean you can't know Him truly. Just because you can't know God fully doesn't mean you can't know Him truly. The Bible is full of the revelation of God. And its purpose is for us to know our God. God wants us to know him. He wants us to love him. He wants us to share our knowledge of him with others. You can know God truly. You just can't know him fully. And then, like we said a second ago, in Proverbs 25 too, you see, it's the process of knowing God that changes us. That's what brings us glory. Pursuing the knowledge of God, that's what changes you. 
So the encouragement to those of you who are feeling dwarfed by the mystery of God is to keep trying. Wrestle with God. Hang on to him. Know God truly. And you will be changed by him because he is big enough for you. Don't be discouraged that you haven't plumbed the depths of God yet. Instead, be encouraged that there is so much more glory for you to know and taste and feel. There's so much more glory than we could possibly imagine. So then, it brings us to the third point today. It isn't necessarily good news that God's sovereignty is absolute or that it's inscrutable unless God's sovereignty is also personal. And I think that's the point that Proverbs makes over and over again. God's sovereignty, God's rule, God's authority is applied in the lives of his people. It extends even into the hearts of people. God's sovereignty is personal. What I mean by that is that God's sovereignty, the reach of his sovereignty, it extends into your life. I also mean that God is not distant or uninvolved, but he's active in your life for your good. Proverbs 15.11 says, Sheol and Abaddon lie open before the Lord. How much more the hearts of the children of man. Sheol and Abaddon lie open before the Lord. How much more the hearts of the children of man. So Sheol and Abaddon are the images of the grave in the Old Testament. They signify the reach of death. And this proverb is making a comparison. It says, if even the furthest reaches of death are under the control of God, then certainly the hearts of man are open before the Lord. If God can see into the furthest reaches of death, then certainly the hearts of people are transparent to him. You see, his authority extends all the way into your life. It's not just over the chance roll of the dice that God has authority, although it is that. He has authority in your life and in your heart and he uses it. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. You see, I grew up in Illinois. So when I think of a river, I think of the mighty Mississippi. I wonder if you've ever seen it. It is a mile wide. A full mile wide. It's an entire ecosystem. It is a force of nature that cannot be reckoned with and on which lives matter. When the river floods, people's lives are at stake. And when the river is low, there is drought. You see, I think this is a fitting image for the heart of a person. We are strong-willed and we are fast-moving. We are set in our ways. We are entrenched in our riverbed. But for the Lord? But for the Lord who established the heavens and the earth? But for the Lord who wraps up the seas like a garment, the riverbed of our hearts can be easily changed. It's simple for him to turn our hearts wherever he will. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. You see, Proverbs tells us that God has authoritative rule in the lives of his people. 
and he uses it to change our hearts. Now, I think that's kind of an uncomfortable thing to realize at first. Most forms of government, in fact, have some limitation on their authority. And we get really upset when we feel like the government has overstepped its bounds. I mean, particularly in the United States, where we have the Bill of Rights, the Bill of Rights is set out to guarantee the protection of its citizens against the overreaching authority of the government, right? We're promised things like freedom of speech and freedom of assembly and freedom of religion. The Fourth Amendment protects us against unreasonable searches. It gives us some measure of privacy against the government. I don't think it's too hard for you to think of a time recently or historically when you know of the government overstepping its authority. And oh man, does that make you mad. You see, I think it's that kind of American individualism, which by the way, I think is a good thing, right? But it's that kind of American individualism that sometimes makes it hard for us to be glad that God's authority has no such bounds. God's authority extends into your heart without limitation. He knows every part of you. And so while you can say to the U.S. government, you don't get to tell me what to think or say, you have no such claim against God. He made you. He knew you before you were born. He is king over all things for all time with absolute authority, and that includes your heart. And that, friends, is remarkably good news. Even if it feels a little uncomfortable at first. Because unlike human government, which is made up of sinful people, God is not corruptible. God is always committed to what is good and true and holy. God is always committed to justice. God is always faithful to his promises, even when we are faithless. And so his authority extending into our hearts is actually a good thing for you. It's good because he is the source of justice. Proverbs 29, 26. Many seek the face of a ruler, but it is from the Lord that a man gets justice. It's good because he is our protector. Proverbs 18, 10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs to it and is safe. Psalm 136. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Deuteronomy 7, 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. And friends, I could go on and on and on. But let me just say this. God's sovereignty is absolute and inscrutable, but it's not a distant authority. God is the king of your heart, and he acts in your life for your good. And the Lord is good and just, and he is our strong tower, and he is full and abounding in steadfast love. Now, if everything that I have just told you is true about God, then I think the question that we have to answer today is, what does any of that have to do with wise living? What does the sovereignty of God in all of its glory have to do with wisdom? 
takes us back to the verse we started with this morning. Proverbs 16, 9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. We spent the first part of our time unpacking the second half of this verse. The Lord, in his sovereignty, establishes the steps of people. But notice that this verse doesn't minimize or take away the first part. We still have to plan our steps. We still have to make choices. We still have to live wisely in light of God's sovereignty. And I, I think we have to admit there's a tension there. I think we have to admit there's a tension that cannot be fully resolved by human logic. You see, these categories, no matter how long you wrestle with them, they just can't seem to square in our human approach to the question. How can both things be true? That we are responsible for planning our steps, that our choices have real consequences, and God has total, authoritative, inscrutable, personal control over our hearts, and he is the one who ultimately establishes what happens. I mean, how can both of those things be true? Well, the way to start is by affirming that they are true. By trusting that what God tells us of himself is true of himself. So we start by affirming that they are true, that we are responsible for planning our steps, that our choices have real consequences, and God is in charge of establishing our steps. We have to affirm that both of these things are true and then work to see how God is glorified in them. In the book of Proverbs, these two ideas, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, these two ideas are wonderfully reconciled in the idea of trust. That brings me then to the fourth point for today. Trusting in God is the foundation of wise living. Proverbs 3, 5 through 8 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. You see, these two verses set up two ways of living. Either you can lean on your own understanding or you can lean on the Lord. You can either trust in your own understanding or you can trust in the Lord. And this kind of lean, it isn't a casual lean. It's a dependent lean. It's the kind of lean that if the thing you're leaning on gives out, you're toast. I think the point is this. Don't lean on your own understanding because it's going to give way under the weight of wise living. You see, the fact that God is a sovereign God whose authority is absolute for all time and in all places, whose sovereignty is so big that he's not totally knowable, whose sovereignty is personally applied to your life for your good, when we lean on that God, we have a guarantee that we are not going to fall. We have a guarantee that wise living is no longer dependent on our feeble strength, but dependent on the character of the sovereign God. In the last couple of years, Jennifer and I have taken uh, to gardening. And we have uh, several tomato plants in our garden. And every year, they get so big that they can't support their own weight. They get so big and they fall over. So we put stakes in the ground. You know, these little quarter-inch wooden stakes that you hammer into the ground right next to the plant. You take some string, you tie it to them. 
The stakes support the weight of the plant. And each year, invariably, I don't hit one of the stakes far enough into the ground. Or, since I've been using them for a while now, the wood rots and the stake breaks. And well, you wake up in the morning and your tomato plant has fallen out of the ground. You see, in order to stand, my tomato plant has to lean on its stake. That's the kind of leaning that we're talking about. And in my garden, the stake occasionally gives way and the plant falls over. But God is not like that. You see, the foundation of wise living, the stake of wise living is God's sovereignty. And the point is that when you tie yourself to God's sovereignty, when you trust and lean on the sovereign God, He is never going to give way. You are never going to fall. Trust in the Lord. Do not lean on your understanding because it will falter under the weight of wisdom. But lean on God's understanding. Lean on a sovereign God and He will make straight your path. You see, God's sovereignty guarantees that His promises are true. So lean on Him. Lean on Him for wisdom. It's the same wisdom that created the world. I think I need to go off script here for just a minute. Because I so desperately want you to feel the joy that trusting a sovereign God can bring to your life. Read the end of verse 6 that we just read a minute ago. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. How many of you are just weary? How many of you are just tired? How many of you long for a time when there won't be any more pain or suffering? Don't just lean on God. Throw yourself on God. Throw yourself on a God who loves you, who is strong enough to hold you. You know, as we were preparing for the service this morning, I was listening to the worship band sing and I noticed that the fourth verse of the song we're about to sing goes something like this. You can turn there if you'd like. It's in whate'er my God. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, yet I am not forsaken. My Father's care is round me there. He holds me that I shall not fall. And so to Him I leave it all. He holds me that I shall not fall. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Jennifer's grandfather, Ed, is nearing the end of his life. He has been in and out of the hospital now several times. And I'm thankful that a few weeks ago we had the chance to go and visit with him. See, Ed is a man of God, and there's nothing I enjoy more than sitting at his feet listening to him talk. On this most recent occasion, I asked him about his death. I asked him how he was feeling. He told me that he was ready to go home, 
He was ready for his suffering to be over and ready to see God. As we talked, we turned to talking to his, about his wife, and his children, and his grandchildren, and his great-grandchildren, how hard it was going to be on us, how much we were going to miss him. And I said something like, well, I'm glad it's not up to us to have to decide. Because even as much as I wanted Ed to be done with suffering, I couldn't bring it on myself to ask that suffering for his family. I'm glad it's not up to me to decide. And Ed said something like, yeah, God never really asked me for my opinion about that kind of thing anyway. Ed likes to tell uh, corny Christian jokes, which I love about him. He said, you know why God created man last? Because he didn't want any advice. And I thought, this is a man who trusts the Lord and not his own understanding. He is at the very end of his life, not sure when his time will come. He is eagerly awaiting the end of his pain, knowing that it's going to cause pain to those whom he leaves behind. And he is not bridled with anxiety. No, he knows. I mean, he knows that God is going to do what's best for him. Ed doesn't want to lean on his own understanding because he knows that it will fail. He leans on the sovereignty of God who loves him. And friends, don't you want to face death like that? Maybe more to the point today. Don't you want to face life like that? Don't you want to face life with the freedom of realizing that there is no way you can ruin God's plan for your life? Don't you want to escape the anxiety-producing bondage of a self-sufficient life? The paralyzing anxiety that so many of us feel when trying to make wise decisions, especially when we're trying to make one of those big life decisions, I think that anxiety comes from thinking that our steps are ultimately our own. To put it in terms of Proverbs 16, we tend to think that it's our responsibility to plan our steps and establish them. And when we think the responsibility of establishing our own life's path falls on us, it can be a scary thing. It's scary because somehow we think we could screw up God's plan for our life. Because we think the choices we make are the final word. That if you fail, if you make the wrong choice, then somehow you could take yourself outside of God's will. Don't get me wrong, there are bad choices. There are even choices that God doesn't want you to make, like cheating on your spouse, for example. But if you are actively considering how being in a relationship with God shapes the decision in front of you, if you know what the Bible says about your decision, if you've talked with other people who you trust, if you've submitted yourself to God over the issue, then the fact of the matter is the only thing left to do is decide. You want to know how to make a choice? Just choose. You see, God's sovereignty frees you up to choose by trusting in the sovereign God to establish your steps. Now, it's important for me to make this point really explicit. Trusting in a sovereign God doesn't mean that we relinquish all choice or responsibility for our choices. Making decisions matter. You see, when you study the sovereignty of God, you might be tempted to think that the choices you make in this life don't matter. I mean, if God really establishes my steps, then how could my choices matter? Because God ultimately decides what happens. I just do whatever I want. Or it can lead to sort of a fatalism or hopelessness. 
no matter what I do, terrible things happen to me. But when you look at other people's lives, notice you never look at your own life and think this. When you look at other people's lives, you say, it doesn't matter what they do, only good things happen to them. I'm here to tell you that is not what the Bible teaches. The whole book of Proverbs has been about making wise choices that have real consequences, both good and bad. Look back at verse chapter 3. See what it says. It says, Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Turn away from evil. Make the choice. You have to turn away. You see, we've said that God in his sovereignty is a wise God. And he chose to give us the book of Proverbs because he knew that we would need them. He knew that we had choices to make and that we wouldn't be well equipped to make them. He knew that we needed his wisdom in order to live in this world in a way that honored him. He knew that choices mattered. He made them to matter. God gave us principles to live by in the Proverbs so that we could avoid the consequences of foolishness. And so we live in a balance. So we live in a balance where God is sovereign and we have to make responsible choices. The freeing solution, the freeing solution that Proverbs gives is this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. So if I could just summarize for a moment where we've come. And it seems that I have gotten carried away. But we'll bring it home here. God's authority is absolute and eternal. God is inscrutable. God is personal. God is trustworthy. And he will never fail you. His promises will never fail you. And it's precisely God's sovereignty that frees us to trust in him without fear that he will topple when we lean on him. His sovereignty guarantees that we can trust him. His sovereignty guarantees the promises he makes to us. And that brings me to the last point we make today that you can trust in the sovereignty of God for your salvation. You see, just like we're called to lean on a sovereign God for wise living, so too we lean on a sovereign God for our salvation. Just as the character of the sovereignty of God secures the paths of wisdom, so too the character of the sovereignty of God secures our salvation. We've said several times now that God's sovereignty is the guarantee of the promises of God. I can't look each of you in the eye when I say this, but I'm going to try. The most important promise you are ever going to hear is that God loves you. And he has a plan for your life. Despite the fact that you have rebelled against the sovereign God, despite the fact that in your sin you have sentenced yourself to eternal separation and death, God loved you and sent his son to die for your sins. And when Jesus died on the cross, he paid the penalty for your sin and brought you into right relationship with God, and you can enjoy him now and forever. You see, friends, God's sovereignty means that nothing can ever separate us from the love that is in Christ Jesus. So stop trusting in yourself and start trusting in Jesus. 
Earlier, I quoted Romans chapter 11. I'd like to read it again and end on this point. See, Paul has spent eight chapters in the book of Romans articulating the main points of the gospel that I just told you in about 30 seconds. And in chapters 9 to 11, he directly addresses this issue of the sovereignty of God and the salvation of people. He wrestles with these true truths, that God is in control and that we are responsible for our sin. And he wrestles with them in light of our salvation. He deals with the pain and the challenges that come. And friends, Paul's response is incredible. It comes in Romans eleven thirty-three to 36. Paul's response to the sovereignty of God is one of worship and awe. It's one of trust and rest. And I think it's the response to God's sovereignty that we can all hope for. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To God be glory forever. Amen. Can you pray with me? Oh, Father, we need your help to trust you. We need your help because we want to trust ourselves. Our minds are so feeble that we cannot see your sovereignty as a good thing. So this morning, God, I pray that you would remind us, remind us of your goodness, remind us of your love, remind us of your control in our lives, remind us that you establish our steps. And, oh God, help us to have faith to believe it. It's in your name we pray. Amen.